Well, I think we all agree that each one of us has this innate sense of justice or fairness. And you see it played out in the simple areas of life. You're uh, in line at the bank and someone comes in and if they go in front of you, if there's not some justifiable reason why they are, then you kind of think, kind of what gives? I mean, what's the deal? We were here first, you came in second, you should be second. It makes sense. Or if you're in the, if you're in the doctor's office and you've been there for 45 minutes, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, and, and someone comes in, you do a quick survey of who's there, and then someone else comes in, and if they get taken to the front first, you're thinking, well, I've waited 45, this is totally unfair. And there's just something in us that is kind of rankled when you feel like someone got something that you didn't or didn't deserve. And this is a, this is a, a strong sense of justice and fairness and equity in our lives. I think you feel this way. Well, does God have the exact same sense of justice as we in every case? I mean, does he feel the same way? Is this, is this, would, would we be mirroring him in this? Well, the parable we have is really kind of a startling parable. I think it's going to challenge you. It's been challenging me. It's, it's going to be a fun one to preach, although it's a hard one. So it's going to be easy for you to understand it, but it's going to be hard for you to really engage it or embrace it. So if you would, turn with me to uh, Matthew 19. We'll read 27 all the way through chapter 20, verse 16. So it's a long passage, uh, so please read with me. This is where chapter divisions sometimes aren't as helpful. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Okay, this is coming off of the heels of the rich young ruler who didn't want to give up what he had and left sad. So what then will we have? Well, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And so to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give to you. So they went going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said, why do you stand here idle all day? They said, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. Now, when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, 
These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. So this is quite, this can be quite a confusing parable. But let me remind you of the context. So in, in Matthew 19, Matthew 16 through 18 was talking a bit about the church. In Matthew 19 and 20, I told you a number of weeks ago that it's really, Jesus is challenging the disciples' view of the kingdom. They held a very conventional, a very logical view of the kingdom. And Jesus is introducing something very non-conventional, counterintuitive. And we've already seen that. In chapter 19, do you remember when he spoke about uh, divorce? And he said, there is to be no divorce except for marital unfaithfulness. That's a pretty strong word to the culture at the time where divorce was quite loose. That was very hard. And so the disciples said, well, then who should get married? In other words, well, Jesus, if that's the way it's supposed to be, I don't know that we should even marry. And and then the very next section you saw that Levy preached on last week, the young children who had no value in the Greco-Roman world, they enter the kingdom by faith, and yet you have the rich young ruler, the trifecta of blessing, if you will, rich, young, and ruling, he doesn't get in. And so the disciples again ask, well, then who can be saved? See, Jesus keeps challenging this conventional understanding of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is far different than the kingdom of man. Well, it's that scene with the rich young ruler that prompts Peter to ask this question. What then will we have? In other words, we've given up everything to follow you, so what are we going to get? Now, Jesus does answer him in verses 27 and 28, and he answers him with some lavish words that you're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel, and anyone who follows me will receive a hundredfold, because he's followed me. So he gives great, a great lavish answer to Peter, but there's something underneath the belly of Peter's question. There's kind of a, a self-serving interest. There's almost a presumption, like, I've given up everything, what are we going to get? And, and we're going to see that in more detail later. But there's kind of this, this underbelly to his question about what are we going to get? We've given up this. We presume you're going to give us this. And this is when Jesus moves to verse 30. Look at 30. He says, but many who are first will be last. And the last first. So Jesus is introducing something here that now ought to cause Peter to tremble. The disciples are kind of in the crosshairs of Jesus at this point. Because he sees, Peter speaking for the group, he sees this presumption that if we're doing this, we're going to get this. If we're your workers, we ought to get this as rewards. And so Jesus is going to give a mild rebuke. And he's saying, be careful, the first of whom they were, because they were called first, you might be last in terms of these rewards. And so he's going to to rebuke them gently. He's going to reverse their understanding of this quid pro quo relationship. Well, if I do this, God's got to do this. And I think he's going to challenge it. And this is what the parable comes out of. Because look in verse, chapter 20, verse 1. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. So Jesus is explaining the parable from this exchange with Peter. So Peter says, what am I going to get? 
And so he teaches the parable. And we know that the parable is answering Peter's question because look at how he ends the parable. It's with the same thing in chapter 20, verse 16. The last will be first and the first last. So he bookends this parable from this proverb. But notice in verse 30 of 19 and verse 20, verse 16 of chapter 20, he reverses. He says, many who are first will be last and last first. Then he says, the last will be first and the first last. Jesus is reversing our understanding of the kingdom. So I want us to recognize most of us come in here with a conventional view of how God's going to dole out the rewards for his servants. Get ready. He's going to challenge that. And that's, that's what the parable is about. So let me just give you some details of the parable, and then we'll talk about what it means. Because as I said, most scholars will look at this parable and say it's probably one of the top three hardest parables to understand, to get your mind around. So the parable is kind of simple in its components, right? You have the, you have the landowner, that's God, and then you have the vineyard, which is his kingdom, and then these workers are just his disciples, the saints who are working in the kingdom. And so he's really teaching a parable about the relationship between God and his people working in his vineyard. So you see this idea of the daily workers. That was, that was customary in the landscape of Israel. Many people would just work for the day. They weren't slaves. They weren't employees. They would go out into the marketplace. They would try to get a job. It was a very, very difficult position to be in. In fact, it was probably the lowest rung on the economic ladder to be one of these workers. Why? Because you never knew if you had a job. You were open to abuse. They could take advantage of you. I mean, I mean, they didn't have, we didn't have labor laws. They didn't have advocacy groups. They didn't have any sort of rules of how to treat employees and fair pay acts and all that we have. You could really easily be taken advantage of. Now, God, even in, in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, he calls for the defense of these workers, even that you have to return their coat to them at night because that's what they need to sleep with. So here, the, um, in fact, I did this for a year. It was, in, it was really a precarious way of making money in my college. I forget what year I was in college, but I'd drive probably 20 miles to the other side of Baltimore or Fort Meade, which was a long way away at the time, and we'd go there and stand at a coffee shop and cars would pull up and They'd say, we got work, and you jump in the car, you don't know the work you're going to do, you don't always know where you're going, and you'd be carted off, and you do the work, you get paid for the day, and that was it. You may get there, there's work for you, you may not have work. Well, that was a tough way. Now, I was still living with my parents, so I wasn't contingent upon the money as, as these men in this story were. But, uh, but I was trying to save money for college, and so it was a, it was a difficult time. You, know, you want to make money, and there's no work for you, or they don't treat you right, or they don't pay you on time or they pay you less than they said they'd pay you. So it's a difficult situation here. And so we have this landowner who goes into the marketplace and hires these men. Now remember, a, a day in the Jewish day would be it's starting at 6 a.m. and ends at 6 p.m. That's going to make sense of the third and the sixth and the ninth hour. So he goes at 6 a.m., he gets these workers, he says, let's work for a denarius. That was a standard wage for a common laborer. And they agree they go into the field. Then the landowner goes back in the, in the third hour, which if you start at 6, that would be 9 a.m., and then the sixth hour would be 12 a.m. He goes back and he says, hey, get out in the field. I still need work done, and I'll pay you what's right. He doesn't promise him a denarius, but he promises to pay him what's right. 
Then he goes back out in the ninth hour. That would be 3 p.m. And then the 11th hour. The 11th hour would be 5 p.m. And the horn blows for work to stop at 6 p.m. So they're only out there for an hour. And he asks him, he says, what are you doing standing here? And by the way, idle in this text doesn't mean lazy. It means they just were idle. They weren't working. And they explain, no one's hired us. And so he says, I'm hiring you. Go into the field. Now everything seems somewhat sensible at this point. Well, here's where the twist comes. And parables always have twists. Always look for the twist in a parable. The first one you see, I think, is when the landowner sends the foreman out and says, you pay them, but pay the last first, which is just what our proverb says, right? Pay the last first. Now, it's always you pay the first first. They've been out there. They've been working hard. They've been diligent. It's a, it's a place of honor to be paid first. But he pays the last first. So right away we know something's amiss right now. But then secondly, he says, you pay the last what you're going to pay the first. You give them a full denarius. Now, a denarius was for 12 hours of work. They worked one-twelfth of a day. So he pays them He pays them a full day's wage for one-twelfth. Now, I think initially, that's very generous, totally unexpected. I mean, with all of our, you, you know, more work, more pay. The, um, I'm sure that the ones started working at 6 a.m. were kind of excited initially because they're thinking. They worked one-twelfth of a day, got a denarius. We worked a whole day, 12 twelfths. Maybe we'll get 12 denarius, 12 denarii, I should say. Well, of course, their hopes are soon dashed. They get one denarius. Now, at that point, you know, you're, you're holding your hand out, and you figure, hey, I'm getting 12. I'll put the other hand out, right? And he puts one denarius in there. And then at this point, they begin to grumble. I mean, call the attorneys. Get the labor laws started. I mean, come on. This is, this is ridiculous. They're grumbling and complaining. And I think you and I can, in our minds, we can sympathize with them, can't we? It's like that does seem unfair, we think, and the first law of economics is more work, more pay. I mean, that's the way it is. And yet it's not that way here. So they grumble and they go to the landowner and they say, you know, we've worked harder, we've produced more, we've suffered more. Why aren't you paying us more? And then very gently, notice how he says, friend. So this is a mild rebuke. Why? Because he's talking to his people. He's talking to his disciples. He says, friend, I've done you no wrong. You agreed to work for a denarius, and I paid you. He says, can I not give with what I have in the manner that I choose? Do you begrudge my generosity? So you can just imagine there's a rebuke to us on that, right? And then he goes back and he says, the last will be first and the first last. He's challenging our understanding of how God is going to deal with us in terms of the labors in the field and the rewards that he gives. So what does it all mean? Well, I want to tell you a couple things that I think it doesn't mean first, what it does not mean. Many people have taken this um, passage and they have tried to turn it into uh, why we need labor laws. And it's a word against the exploitation of workers due to the, you know, the abuses in an agrarian culture. Some want to look at this and they want to try to draw out kind of a a socialistic solidarity of the workers and everybody needs to be paid the same thing. I I don't think it means those things. Those are fine discussions and there have been great abuses and 
uh, with labor, particularly with children. It's a good discussion to have, worthy, but I don't think it's here. Others in the church have tended to allegorize this parable. They, they've allegorized it. What they've done is they've tried to interpret. And, and what, in, what we do when we allegorize is we try to import meaning into each part of a parable. And, and we usually can say anything we want about anything we want, actually, when we do that. But many have looked at this parable and said, him going out at 6 a.m. and 9 and 12 and 3, that those are different epochs of redemptive history of God. Adam, and then Abraham, and then Moses, and then David, and Jesus, and they've tried to scale it out that way. Others have tried to look at these different times where the landowner went into the marketplace and tried to say, well, you know, he began with the Jewish nation, and then, and then he moved to Jesus, and the apostles, and the Gentiles. Others still have looked at this, and this is probably closer to your experience, they've looked at this, and they have seen how, no, this just expresses how God saves people at different times of life. So some people come at 6 a.m., that is, they come to the faith early in life. They're young, maybe they're a teenager. And then some come at 9 and 12, maybe they're 20s or 30s, and then there's always that deathbed conversion, the 11th hour guy that comes right at the end of his life. Well, we rejoice in deathbed conversions, no doubt, but um, I don't think that the disciples would have ever understood that. I mean, we have to remember what's the intent of the author and how would the audience have responded, and they wouldn't have seen that. So let let me provide to you a way, I think, to better interpret this parable, and that is in the context in which it's been given. So he's talking to the disciples, and these disciples we know were presumptive to God over what he ought to give them because they were first. Peter says, what are you going to give us? Now, we know this because if you go to the next section in Matthew 20, 17 to the end of the chapter, you're going to find that James and John are vying for positions around Jesus' throne, his right and his left. And the other disciples are indignant over this move. Why? Probably because they didn't ask first. But they were looking for positions in the kingdom. They were looking to get up the rung of the ladder. That's the way their mind was working. And you see a degree of conceit and self-advancement. And so Jesus is instructing them about this presumption they had over what they're entitled to because of what they have done. So I think, that's, I think he's, he's rebuking them. And so let me give you three thoughts that I think come out of this. There may be more. But these are at least three we can begin with. The first thing I think we see in this parable, so he's talking to his disciples. His disciples are looking, their pockets are empty. They're ready to receive all that God has for them in terms of reward. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Number one, I think he's saying this, that God satisfies us with his grace. That's the first thing we want to draw from this. Let's be satisfied with the grace of God in the redemption of Christ. Why do I say that? Well, everybody got the same wage. It it didn't matter when you came into the kingdom, when you went into the vineyard. Everybody gets the same. There is no priority given to those who enter the kingdom earlier. So if you've come to faith in Christ at a young age, and, and others here have come at an older age, that bears no reflection on the joy that you will have in the communion with God. That, that there's no merit, there's no people aren't going to somehow enjoy God in greater measure because they've been more gifted and they've produced more for the kingdom, that, that they've had more time in the kingdom. 
that you see this idea, even in the first will be last and the last will be first, there's really no distinction that the kingdom is entered by grace and his grace is going to be satisfying, that, that there's no, if you will, spiritual rungs on the ladder in heaven. In fact, one author said it this way, that the righteousness in which Timothy will stand on the day of judgment is the same as that of the penitent thief. Both will be saved by grace alone. Both will owe all to Christ. So I think from the parable that there's no pecking order, that we're all going to be satisfied by his grace. Now, this is satisfying to me. I mean, I think, it, I, I think in our world of performance, in our world of every day you're being measured, Every day you're being analyzed. Every day, where am I next to the people that I'm with? And, and in the kingdom of God, there is not that present. There is, it's satisfying to know that all are accepted, all enjoy the same measure of communion with God. Many of you know the hurt of being in a family where a parent has played favorites. Can you imagine if God did that to us? Can you imagine if God really just like this person over here, but you couldn't have the same audience with them in heaven? Can you imagine if they got more of God than you got of God? Jesus is teaching us here, be satisfied. Everybody will be satisfied with God. We'll all have the same deep, passionate communion with creator of the universe. I mean, it's deeply satisfying to me that the performance, the ladders that we climb in this world, they will not be there. Everybody, it's a dog sled analogy. Nobody wants to be in the back. Everybody wants to be in the front. There is not that in heaven. So we're going to be deeply satisfied in God. Everyone who has confessed Jesus Christ by faith will be satisfied. I mean, this is the beauty of the gospel, really. I mean, when you think about the foot of the cross, the ground under the cross is all level. I mean, what Jesus has done for us by coming in the flesh by being born of a woman, being born under the law, living perfectly for God, living for his glory in every way, in utter perfection. What Jesus has done for us by carrying our sins, by bearing the wrath of God, and by being raised to life and seated at the right hand of God, above all rule, authority, power, and dominion for the church, what he's done for us is made a way for all of us to enjoy God in full measure. The fruit of salvation isn't simply the deliverance from hell. It's the enjoyment of God forever. I mean, that's what heaven's about. It's not what we don't have to have. It's what we get to have, which is God in full measure. I mean, think about it. To have God in full measure, equivalent with everyone else, that to me is deeply satisfying. I can rest in that truth. I don't need to worry about the rungs and the ladders ahead. So that's the first thing I, I think we get from this text. Okay, the second thing would be that God surprises us by his generosity. Now look at the 11th hour with me for a minute. So, so this man, remember now, we do live under this rule of equal pay for equal work. More work, more pay. Okay, so you get these guys going out in that field at 5 p.m. And they're going to work for an hour and they get the same wage. Now, that, that is incredible. Most of us like to work at 5 p.m. in the yard. The, the sun's going down. The breeze kicks up a little bit. It's actually kind of therapeutic. I enjoy working in the yard when the day's kind of getting cool. And, it's, and here they get a full denarius. 
compared to the guy slaving since 6 a.m. in the heat for 11 hours before he picks up a shovel. I mean, think about the generosity. God's generosity goes beyond your human expectations. I mean, nobody would expect this. In fact, these really, these 11th hour workers, you know them because they're the ones that really understand grace. I mean, they know they're getting something they don't deserve. I mean, they're blown away by it. They're, they can't believe it. There's actually a coin that was worth one-twelfth of a denarius that could have been paid. No, no, what God's saying is, there's no one-twelfth of my love. No, no, God's so generous, he pays them in full measure. So this is a picture of us really running afoul with God when we try to presume upon him, or we try to dictate to him, or we try to calculate from him how he ought to reward us for our service in the kingdom and the ministries that we do. Now, if you're a Christian here, you're thankful over this parable. You're grateful that he came into the vine, he came to the town, and he called you. If he, you know, we have no claim on God. He came in and he called us, he hired us, he led us to his vineyard. I mean, you and I, if he hadn't have interrupted our lives, what would we have done? Well, we would have pursued the same goals and the same angles, the same temporary ends, the same unsatisfying goals in life, and we would just passively live this life without, just like your neighbors, without any recognition of transcendence or little recognition of it, that living from toy to toy to toy, just living from experience to experience to experience, and like everybody, we wake up at 65 if we make it that long and wonder, where did life go and what have I achieved for myself? But God interrupted us in that. Aren't you grateful for that? That God woke you to his transcendence and his glory? All because Christ has done what he's done. And God is now free and just to just display his grace to us by waking us up to truths you have that they don't. And it wasn't because you figured it out. It was because God interrupted your life and introduced himself to you and hired you and put you in the vineyard. It's incredible. And, and many of you, we don't rejoice over that. So I want to I encourage you to do that to be thankful, maybe even to consider this afternoon, why do you know what you know about Jesus Christ? Well, because he came in, he grabbed you, and he said, hey, you're going to work for me. Go, go out in the field. And you're out in the field working for him and serving him right now. Let's thank him for that. Let's rejoice over that. But for some of you, you've been in the field a long time. Maybe you did come at a young age. You've been laboring and serving under the burden of the day and feeling the scorching heat of the sun, and you're tired, and you're beat up. You see people passing you. You see people getting along better than you. And it is discouraging, and it can be frustrating. You see someone come into the field, grab a shovel at 5 p.m., and there's a little bit of resentment in you because you've been laboring so hard, and they seem to do it so casually compared to you just burdened by the day. Well, may I encourage you to persevere? May I encourage you in God's generosity? You will not. You will not fail to be thankful, even though you may be burdened now. I, I, I want to assure you, based upon the word of God, that you will be thankful, even if you've had to work the 11 hours before this person. Be thankful. Listen, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he says, no eye has seen, um, no mind has, he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived cannot even imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. 
Or Paul says in Romans 8, for the present sufferings of this world are not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Let me give you one more in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, be immovable. Be steadfast. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Listen, you've been serving God a long time. You've been involved in this ministry. It's difficult. You're misrepresented. You're misunderstood. People fail to appreciate you. You're doing this. Nobody else ever seems to be doing it. You tend to fall into a pity party. You tend to begin to think, well, if it wasn't for me, this wouldn't be happening. Let me continue to labor in the Lord for his glory. You will be rewarded by an immensely generous God. A God who we cannot, it says he lavishes kindness on us. We really, I think, because we may be so miserly in the way we dole out the pennies, we tend to project that back on God. And I just don't think if, if he who would not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, I mean, how will he not graciously along with him give us all things? So, so be mindful of that. He's a generous God. Labor on. I don't know what ministries you're in or maybe what ministries you're considering or how you're feeling about your service in the kingdom, but labor on. Press yourself more. I tell you, when the day comes and the foreman calls, don't think anybody's going to complain. And and then I would say this to the person who's here, maybe who's on the fringe of Christianity, maybe you're considering it. Isn't this at least an intriguing picture of God? I mean, you have a God who's totally just, and yet he's gracious and he's generous. Don't you get the impression from this parable that, that God, the landowner, is going out and getting more workers for the worker's sake and not his own? I mean, he's been a landowner for a long time. He isn't such a lousy estimator of work that he can't figure out how many men he needs in the field. I mean, really, how many years do you have to be a farmer to figure out? You don't have to go back to the marketplace four times to hire more people. He knows what he needs. You get the impression he keeps going back because they keep being there. The, the, the workers need the work more than he needs the workers. This compassionate, generous God keeps going, oh, you're still here? What are you doing here? No one's hired us. I'll hire you. You see the compassionate reaching out of God. So if you're not a Christian, this is a type of God that the Bible displays before us, that he's a searching God, he's a compassionate God, calling you to himself. Not everybody's in the vineyard. The way that we enter this vineyard of the kingdom is through repentance and faith. Hey, the first thing Jesus preached when John the Baptist was taken in prison, Jesus begins his ministry, he says this. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what we're talking about. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, repent means to turn from our sins and to begin to walk by faith, trusting that Jesus Christ is the one who has borne your debt of sin who is going to reconcile you to the Father and give you full communion with him. And so I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian here, to consider these things. Listen, time presses on. And I would not take the patience of God, and I wouldn't be presumptuous with it. J.C. Rowell, great, you quote him all the time. Here's what he said about this text. He's a British pastor of the um, 19th century in London. He said this, One thief on the cross was saved so that none despair, but only one, that none should presume. A false confidence in these words, 11th hour conversion, has ruined the thousands of souls. 
In other words, the person who says, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, you never get to it. So, so I would encourage you to consider these things. Okay, so he's, he has um, satisfied us with his grace. He has surprised us with his generosity. Let me hit you with one. Last one, third point. He startles us with a clear warning here. There's a clear warning we're going to look at in 13 to 15. He's going to startle us. And the first thing, and I've kind of given some word to it, let me explain a little bit more. He warns us against presuming upon God. Look at what the disciples say, or I should say the workers, these workers at 6 a.m. In verse 12, he says, they, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. In other words, these workers are saying, you've made them equal to us. We can presume upon you that we have a higher stand with you than they. So they're presuming upon God to understand their role. They're looking at working in the kingdom in, in kind of a conventional sense that we do right now, with more work equals more pay. And we're finding in this parable, that isn't the way it works. God will be fair with everyone, but he's not generous with everyone in the same measure. That God doesn't dole out rewards in a proportionate sense. That if you go in thinking, well, this is what I've sacrificed and this is what I've done, this is what I've given up for you, God, this is what I'm entitled to, I would caution you because that's what brought Jesus to say, but many who are first will be last. There's a warning there. It's a mild rebuke. We are all subject to thinking, well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And, and you just hear the click, click, click of the calculator going up. I'm going to get this, and I'm going to get this. Or there's expectations that we place upon God. And I would just caution us over that. I don't think, I think this parable teaches us that we cannot calculate what that final day will look like, that we cannot assess it as we might our own pension funds, our own performance for the year. You know, when Carol and I, many of you know, some of you know this, um, when, Carol, when I was still in accounting and Carol and I were considering going overseas, we had two young children and, and, uh, and we had a, a ministry in, in the prison. I did and Carol had a ministry at the church. And so we were actively engaged and people had thought we had lost our minds. And, um, but we prayed about it because we didn't want to just go off, you know, without humility and seeking counsel of others and praying. So we prayed, and we prayed often about it. Well, one day, we were in the middle of the decision, feeling a lot of heat, particularly from parents and other friends, about this decision. And so we prayed and prayed and prayed. And so I opened the scriptures, and I came to this verse right here in 29, Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Well, you can imagine that encouraged me. I wasn't looking for that, but God furnished it for my eyes to see, and I was grateful, and I was encouraged by it. Now, unbeknownst to me, Carol had been praying the same thing in the morning. We didn't have cell phones, so you can't talk 32 times a day, and so I hadn't talked to her. But when we got together at night, she said, the greatest thing happened to me. I was praying about it, feeling the burden of this decision. And I said, Lord, you must speak to me. And she did what I wouldn't necessarily advance, but God did meet us in her ignorance. And she just opened the Bible. What do you got for me? Now, if you do that, just read the whole chapter. Uh, but, but she just looked down, and she saw this verse, 
And, uh, and so we, we rejoiced over God's grace in kind of confirming for us that we felt he was leading us in this endeavor. But here's what happened. When I got that, and when we talked about it, and we began to make, that was a real key element to move us forward. Well, then as we started preparing, I fell into this presumption of, look at what we're giving up. I mean, look at how much we're giving up. We're leaving family, we're leaving farms and houses, sold the house, sold the car, got rid of everything, taking our children over. And, and there became in me this presumption upon God that I'm now embarrassed over. I read that verse, and by the way, I didn't read it in context, because the context would have straightened me right up. But I didn't. I just read that, and I said, look at me. Look at what I'm giving up. I'm going to receive a hundredfold. And there became in me a certain arrogance over what I deserved because of what I was giving up. And I was falling prey to the very same thing, because I didn't read it. I didn't understand it. And so it was a corrective to me when I got overseas, and things weren't swimming. And there was resentment with God. There was a degree of animosity to God. We really struggled. I thought it should be much easier. But it wasn't. And so we want to watch the presumption that because we're doing this, God is somehow beholden to us to do this. It's not so. God will be generous, and he has been generous. But we don't want to be calibrating and calculating. Secondly, I think the warning here that he startles us is to not be boastful. He's warning us over boastfulness. These disciples had a unique opportunity. They had a unique time. They had unique power given to them. And they felt that they had, it, they had more coming. Look at the ministries they had. We're going to be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. They had it thinking in their mind that due to their gifts, due to their position, they're going to get this. Many of us, when we look at those around us, we see them very gifted, very effective, and, and perhaps you are. Perhaps you have more of a platform ministry. I call ministries that are more upfront, more of a platform ministry. You, know, you get more attention, you get seen more, you get more accolades. And we tend to think that if we have those type of ministries, or maybe it's even in the business in the marketplace, you're very effective, you're, you're intelligent, you pick up things quickly, you're able to speak well, or perhaps it's in some other field, you're a student and you can just glance over material and you can gain a grasp, you can grasp it and understand it and then really profit from taking tests and getting high marks whereas other people don't have the same gifting as you and you, you tend to almost feel a little confident, unique in your position. I would just caution you. I would caution you over that. And I think Jesus is doing that that what do you have that you haven't received? And why do you boast as though you haven't received it? And really, a, a word of encouragement is for the person that doesn't have the platform ministry. Maybe you just don't like to be in front of people. You don't feel strong teaching. You're not the best student. You don't do things with excellence all the time. You don't have the gift list that other people have, or you don't have the, you know, some people, they can just, fall into the right place at the right time, and they just seem to always end up on their feet. And you're not that way. You feel more comfortable just getting water for a Sunday school class or setting up chairs or handing out bulletins. Do not minimize that work. I mean, I, I, think, I think this parable is teaching us that those who come in late and have done less, and yet they experience more of God's generosity. I mean, be encouraged. 
Don't look at your giftings. Those of you, those of you who maybe don't feel as gifted, don't look at yourself as less than. You're not less than. That's the glorious thing about God's economy. Remember how Jesus said, even a cup of cold water will not be forgotten? I mean, I, I think we tend to look at the platform ministries as somehow better and more glorious than, let's say, the servant role. We're going to see next week, or in two weeks at least, how the servant role is actually the Christ role. So, so, so be mindful of that. The third warning, I think, is to do not fail to appreciate the sovereignty of God. Listen to what God says here in verse 13. He says this. He says, I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? God is sovereign over how he's distributed our gifts. God is sovereign how he's going to reward us for our labor. You can't take a conventional model and apply it to God. God's going to do what God's going to do. Now, does this frustrate you? Does this frustrate you that you can't calibrate how God's going to respond? I mean, it does frustrate us. Sometimes we like to know, okay, if I do this, I'm going to get this. And when it doesn't work that way, you know, when it's kind of rolling a dice, if you will, you know, you don't know the outcome, it, it can frustrate us. We want something more definite, more determined. But let me tell you, folks, we, we have to step back and humble ourselves before God. He is sovereign, and he's going to distribute. And if he wants to give somebody that comes into the fold in the 11th hour, he wants to give them a full denarius, he wants to give them gifts and talents and, and skills beyond you, that's his choice. And you know what? We thank him for it. Because they're going to be, they're going to be better for the kingdom, and the kingdom will be better for them. And then the last warning he gives us is this warning of envy. And this is the one that I just want to park on for a minute. He says, do you begrudge my generosity? The word begrudge uh, literally is, do you have an evil eye? Now, an evil eye, many of you have heard that expression. You know, my mother is Italian, and she used to always say, I'm giving you the evil eye. It was an expression of envy. Like, if you think you're getting something over me, I'm cursing you right now. Obviously, my mother didn't curse me. It was an expression of, but it is a true expression among many cultures that the evil eye is cursing the, pro, the person who is doing better and getting more. In other words, they're getting ahead, and I'm going to curse them so that they won't get ahead of me. And he says to them, do you give me the evil eye because of my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity to others? In other words, are you envious that I've been kind to others in a way that I haven't been kind to you? This is the poisonous fruit of comparison. When you compare yourselves to others and you see what others have, what you don't have, you then quickly grow discontent over God's kindness to you. And you actually grow not just discontent, but even resentful to God. You feel shorted by God. Why didn't I get that? Look at what they got. Look at the marriage they have. Look at the children they have. Look at the business they have. Look at the home they have. Look at the money they have. Look at the comfort they have. And we begin to grow resentful over how God is running his kingdom. Now, I think in some respects, if I were to ask you, who do you identify with in this parable? I think most of us, although now we wouldn't be so quick to say it, but I think Ray had said it right in the beginning, we identify ourselves with the 6 a.m. workers. We kind of feel like there's a little bit of favoritism going on, a little bit of injustice maybe. And, and, and we, we never want to assign ourselves with the group that's opposing God. That's usually not a good thing to do. We don't want to do that. So if that's the case, we want to repent and back away from that group. That's not a good group to be in. But, but as I said before, all these groups are disciples. They're all in the kingdom. But it's that resentment he's talking about. 
Is that a struggle for you? Do you find resentment to be within your heart towards others? Or do you find yourself kind of grinding your teeth, thinking, well, maybe you pacify yourself. You say, well, I'm working harder than any of them at this, and therefore God's going to give me more because of it. They don't even have to work hard. We don't want to fall into that because we saw it doesn't work with this parable. There's this seething, there's this kind of this undercurrent of resentment that we can have for one another when it's God who's distributed these things out. And I want to caution you of that. I want to remind you of the prodigal son because the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, is really close to this story. Remember that the father has two sons. The younger son gets his money from his dad, basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Takes his money, burns it in wine, women, and song. Comes back, a broken man, repentant appeals to the father. The father is rejoicing because, look, the son that I had lost is now found. He was dead. In other words, he was cut off the covenant community. Now he's back. Let's rejoice. Throw a party. Give him a robe. Give him a ring. Give him some sandals. Let's have a great party. Then the older brother, of course, hears the noise comes in from the field, and he's been slaving and serving, and he's grumbling. He's kicking the dust. He's smacking the tires on the car. He's he's all ticked off. The father comes out. What's wrong? Why aren't you in the party? He says, I've been working for all these years. I've, I've been slaving for you. I've never taken a thing from you. I've never taken a goat from your pen. You've never thrown a party for me. You've never cut a fatted calf for me. You, blah, 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 blah. And the father looks at him with these passionate eyes and says, everything I have is yours. Everything I have. And, and you see that older brother is just, just a complainer, not even rejoicing over the work that was done by God saving the man. Now that parable is told to the Pharisees who were resenting God for saving the sinners. But this parable is telling to us, the Christians, to not resent and envy one another. And and, and this takes place at all levels. It takes place in your homes, with your marriages. It takes place in your business environment. It takes place in the church. Listen, people in ministry struggle with, hey, that guy is a great preacher. Now we have the internet, the radio, and you you can hear 50 preachers, 100 times better than me, that take half the time to prepare a sermon that I take. And and so you're struggling with, well, God, why wasn't I I given those gifts, or gifts of of memory, or skill, or creativity? You know, so I fight it. We all fight it. But we want to remember, no, this is God's kingdom. We want to rejoice over the generosity of God. As this, or you see a church, a bigger church with a more thriving ministry. Temptation is to think, well, why'd they get all this? But no, 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 we want to fight that. Or a marriage, or a fellow student that you see that has, we want to fight that and rejoice over what God is doing and rejoice over his generosity because we all profit by it. So, so th- this is kind of just a short teaching on the gifts, right? That, that God is going to satisfy us with his grace. He's going to surprise us with his generosity. But he does startle us because he wants us prepared and he wants us right. Now, I haven't talked about everything related to rewards and the gifts that God will give us when we see him face to face. We haven't covered it all. There are other passages, Matthew 5. There's 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that speak, us about, that speak about He'll reward us according to our labor. I don't think it's trying to answer all those questions. I think he's simply trying to say to us, be cautious with trying to calculate or think that God is somehow beholden to us in our service to him. I think he's cautioning us also to not have a mercenary attitude. Some people look at God as, I'm doing this because of the gift. I'm doing this because he's going to reward me. I'm doing this because he's going to reward me. And I think that, that that's confusing the gift of God with the gifts of God. I always would rather have the gift of God 
because that's always far better than the gifts of God. So we don't want to approach this in a mercenary way either. So let's take a minute now. I've given you a lot. And let's just um, take a minute and, and allow God to speak to us, and you can speak to him um, regarding perhaps a point of confession, resentment, envy, frustration, uh, or perhaps thankfulness over what he has done. And then Larry's going to close us in, in just a minute.